Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. I'm here as always with Caitlin Murray. And I think starting on the Timbers side, we're going to have a pretty dramatic game. Uh, we haven't had many of those to talk about, if any, uh, this year uh, that we get to discuss today. <laughs> yeah, it was only their second comeback win. I don't think you and I got to fully appreciate it because (laughs) you were writing for the Oregonian. I was writing for the Associated Press. We had to get our gamers done. It was only afterward that I was like, wow, that was a really exciting game. I uh, didn't appreciate it in the moment, but yeah, it was one of the few exciting comeback wins that we've had, at least from this season, definitely. But really, when I think about the Timbers, regular season, that's probably one of the more exciting games as well. Yeah, I think in playoffs, uh, this team tends to f- ha- find a dramatic performances. Yes, but, they love the yeah. dramatic flair in the, <laughs> in the postseason. Absolutely. But yeah, not not so much in the regular season. I looked back, uh, as you mentioned, the Timbers only have two wins this year where they didn't score first. And so I looked back at the other one. It was against Toronto and Toronto scores in the 20th minute. The Timbers respond and score in the 22nd minute. So I... I wasn't I don't really even kind of a, that one. Yeah, it wasn't really a comeback win. I mean, yes, they conceded first, but it, it was tied for the majority of the game. And, and then they, I think they found the second goal relatively early in the second half. So nothing quite like the game we saw this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll get to all of the narratives and factors, but the short bench, Brian Fernandez having his flu game or whatever we're <laughs> going to call it. So there are a lot of little things that made it even more unexpected that that was going to happen. Yeah. And I, I do want to point out that because we, we've been talking about predictions, we've been sort of joking around about how bad our predictions are. Your, your <laughs> prediction was actually pretty good. Uh, you didn't get the scoreline right, but you said a one zero win. So you got the win right. And you said, a Bobasi would score a goal. Um, so you, you yeah. kind of got pretty close. But yeah, the betting on the Timbers winning at home wasn't, ex- I mean, <laughs> not that the reform has been great, but I guess if you just go by the sheer numbers, yeah. I actually saw um, 538 from ESPN. They have their predictions. They are predicting uh, that the Timbers are going to make the playoffs. I looked at their prediction for this game. They gave the Timbers the edge. So we get so caught up in team's form and stuff like that. But 
I kind of went with the odds on that <laughs> one. So, and Jeremy Obosi is a forward. So yeah. I'm not going to pat myself on the back too hard for that one. <laughs> well, you did do better than me. I, I thought they were going to draw, and I, I thought Kansas City would have some more opportunities. I thought Clark would make eight saves. He only made four. So I definitely didn't get the game right. I, I don't think either of us quite got the spirit of the game, as we've sort of mentioned. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, let's get right into it. For you, was this the uh, Timbers' biggest win of the year? Well, I think... As the game started, this did not feel like a game the Timbers were destined to win. As mentioned, the Timbers barely had any players. They couldn't even fill the bench. They only had 16 on the roster. Uh, Sporting Kansas City, um, they were missing a lot of players as well. But the effect of that was that they didn't really venture forward that much. They sort of packed in and they played that bunkering style that we have been talking about all season is not something that the Timbers match up against very well. So I thought this was a game that the Timbers were sort of destined to lose. Uh, I had written my lead as if they lost. (laughs) I had to change it as if they got a draw. And then I had to change it again when they won. So (laughs) I'm sure you had a similar emotional journey during that game. (laughs) So for them to be able to come back and get that result, given those circumstances, given the way Sporting Kansas City played, I do think that is a very important result to get. I think that represents something that the Timbers can build upon and kind of build confidence from. Uh, I thought the Timbers didn't really look that good until they scored that goal in the 83rd minute. Then I thought they were in total control of the game. But until then, I wasn't really sure they were going to be able to work their way into the game, but they did it. I mean, Diego Chara sort of orchestrated that goal. I think he deserves a ton of credit. Um, But like we said, second comeback of the season, maybe the first true comeback if we're kind of thinking about the spirit of being down and managing to come up with a win. But I think this, you know, maybe this is a fork in the road. Maybe this kind of carries them to having the peak form that they want and hitting their stride. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we're going to look back at this and say, oh, that was exciting and it gave everyone false hope. (laughs) So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a six-point swing and a very important important point of the season. Uh, Kansas City, with a win here, would have tied the Timbers on points. The Timbers would have remained below the red line. It just would have been demoralizing, too, with the Timbers losing. At that point, it would have been three of their last four home games, games that they need to win. That's what the season was sort of built upon. I just think from a mentality standpoint, and this is the time of the season where you have to start looking at the standings a little bit. I think this was huge for the Timbers. I mean, at this point in the season, games are going to be more important naturally because we're looking at the table and teams are trying to make playoffs. And this was the team that was right below the Timbers in the standings. And this might've been the game where the Timbers sort of forced Kansas city out of playoff position. Um, Kansas city has been trying to make a run back up the standings. They still could do it. But a win for Kansas City would have made a huge difference in terms of trying to get back above that red line. And with the loss, they they really are in a difficult situation. So I think this was a hugely important win for the Timbers. I think it is positive that they were able to come back and win against a team that was bunkering. Although, as you mentioned, I think they had good energy throughout the game. I, I thought it was a solid performance throughout the entire game. But they, as you mentioned, they did struggle once again up until I, I 
I felt like it turned a little bit in their favor once Kansas City scored. Mm-hmm. Um, but up until that point, they they were struggling to break down Kansas City. So that I don't think that problem by any means has been solved. Yeah. But it is a confidence boost to be able to come back, score against a team that's muckering, score against a team that is right behind you in the standings and, and get sort of a statement win like this. Yeah, it, this game does not by any means mean that everything is solved. I'm sure we'll touch on Brian Fernandez. I don't think that means that all of the discussion we've had about Brian Fernandez for the last several weeks is just moot at this point. Um, but I, th- I think your point about the playoff race is an important one. I mean, one of the uh, tricks as a reporter when you're covering a game is you try to write most of it in a way that no matter the result, you don't have to change the story. But I had to write my playoff race paragraph you know, three times because it was such a pivotal game in terms of what it did to the standings. So I I think that's an important point to hit on. It it was a six-point game, essentially, and I think for Kansas City fans, you know, this podcast isn't for them, but I'm sure they are looking at this game and saying this might be the moment where Kansas City took themselves out of the postseason. Yeah. And I think uh, hitting on your point from earlier, I mean, the Timbers were uh, missing a lot of players. They only had 16 available players between field players and goalkeepers. And it would have been really easy for them to sort of take that and sort of have a a poor performance and just not be able to handle all those absences. And they've in the last two games, despite missing a ton of players, they've been able to find a way to get the job done. And I, I think, I don't know if they're going to be able to carry that through this entire month if these injuries don't, uh, if some of these players can't get back on the field. But yeah. I think that's also, you know, a good sign for them to be able to have picked up these results despite those absences. Yeah, we'll see. We're, we're going to talk about these absences <laughs> a little more. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, sort of start in the first half. And I think one of the biggest points coming out of the first half happened at halftime. And that's with Giovanni Savaresi. Um, in his halftime interview with Nat Borchers, about as emotional as I've ever seen him in a halftime interview. Oh, my interview. God. <laughs> he was furious. Yeah. My favorite part is that normally uh, Nat will say, thanks for your time, Gio, or something like that. And then Gio will, like, give him a little pat on the back or something and walk back. He, Gio just made his statement, <laughs> ranted against the referees, and just turned around and walked away. Like, he couldn't <laughs> even stand to even think about it for another second. So that was my favorite part. Underrated moment of that interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was absolutely, as you said, furious. Uh, there was a potential handball in the box in the ninth minute, and then another one uh, uh, later, I think it was in first half stoppage time, another situation where a ball hit yeah. Uh, Kansas City defenders, I, I think, leg or foot and then hit their hand. That was also not called. Um, I, I guess seeing those seeing those moments, seeing the replays on them, do you think the ref made the right calls? And do you think that Savaresi is right to be frustrated with the refereeing this season, given that it does seem like a lot of calls have gone against the Timbers? Since there were two, I guess let's just go one by one. I mean, yeah. the first one... Diego Valeri takes a shot. It goes off the arm of Luis Martins, I think is how you say his name. Martins' arm was tucked in tightly against his body. And I think the ball was going to hit his body anyway. I think the hand was in a natural position. He was trying to get it out of the way. For me, I think overturning that was actually the correct call. Yeah, I agree. I think actually, I mean, you can tell me your opinion. I I agree on that one. I think that the... 
I, I like you said, it was in a natural position. I, I think it's hard to argue that one. The minute I saw it, I thought it was going to be overturned by VAR. And so I wasn't surprised to see that call. I think the second one, even though there wasn't really a VAR review on it, probably was the one that was more questionable. But what did you think? Well, the game was actually re-aired on Root Sports on Sunday, and I happened to catch the replay. And because during the game, you and I actually, I think we didn't really get a good look at what happened in that moment. It wasn't really making the rounds on social media either, so we were kind of left a little bit in the dark. So having had the chance to watch it again, the ball goes off of Matt Beasler's, I think, thigh or leg or something, pops up, hit his hand. And I have to say, after watching the replay, I also don't really think that one was a handball. I mean... You could say Matt Beasler's hand was certainly not tucked into his body the way Louise Martin's was, but I don't think he could have gotten it out of the way. I think it was sort of an unexpected bounce that he couldn't have anticipated. So for me, I actually don't know if that was a handball. I I don't necessarily think it was wrong that uh, a penalty wasn't given, but I do think, you know, to Giovanni Savarese's point that he made at halftime, that he made on the field after the game, that he made in the press conference after the game, is there has been a lot of inconsistency, so we definitely could have seen a penalty given for that handball, but I personally don't have a problem with it not being called. Yeah, I, I guess I don't have a huge problem with it not being called, but I, I do agree with Savarese on, on the inconsistency. I think there have been moments like that that have been called within MLS this year, and, and I, I do think that by with the ball hitting his hand, had his hand not been there, I, I think the Timbers may have had the opportunity to score a goal because I, right. I don't know where that ball was going to go. So I do think yeah. his hand in a, in a not natural position basically saved the play for them. And that's sort of my argument for maybe it should have been a penalty, but I, I don't think we see it that often call when it comes off a player's leg and then hits their arm. I, I think that's yeah. something we see called less of the time, but I, I think a lot of calls have gone the, against the Timbers. I would say a lot of them have been the correct calls, but I understand the frustration at this point when a sovereign is seeing things called differently in different games. And I think there is an issue and we've talked a lot about it uh, throughout this year, throughout previous years, just with the consistency of the referees and the professional referee organization. And I, yeah. I do think there should maybe be more detailed instructions around penalty kicks, how they want to call specific moments, just so that coaches and players and, and the referees are fully aware of what everything's going to look like. And maybe it's not left to be as subjective. Um, I just yeah. don't think pros been as consistent as they need to be. And I don't think VAR, as we've talked about, has been as, as consistent as it needs to be either. So I, I get the frustration there, even though I don't know. I, I agree with you. I don't know if either of those uh, shouts uh, really should have resulted in penalty kicks. Well, I think... You know, we can go back to that one, uh, the handball that was called against Larry Smabiala. And I think you and I both agreed that that should not have been a handball, but that went against the Timbers. And when you look at something like that, and then something like this isn't given, you can see how Giovanni Severese was upset about it. And, you know, I think his point is well taken. He said, you know, it's not a conspiracy against the Timbers or anything, but it has been inconsistent. And I think, I think kind of the way things are moving, we're going to get to a point where 
there's going to be a decision that if a ball hits a player's hand, it's just automatically counts as a handball. I think we're moving toward getting rid of trying to interpret intent. And I think that's probably the only way you can address this. But what I thought was interesting is after the game, I was the only person that went to speak to Peter Vermees. And I just asked him, you know, what are your takeaways from the game? The first thing he talked about was the refereeing. He thought it was terrible. And I think the calls certainly went in sporting Kansas City's favor, but he still had a problem with the refereeing. And that speaks to sort of a larger issue about the quality of refereeing in MLS. I mean, I am not someone who watches the Premier League or um, the other big European leagues, but the sense that I get is that people think MLS refereeing is worse. I don't know if that's perception or if it's true, but when I was watching the replay of the game, the ref did kind of lose control of it in moments. I mean, there was a point where Gerso for Kansas City was standing like five yards from Valeri on a free kick and the ref didn't do anything. And then Gerso blocked it and the referee said it was a handball on Gerso and gave him a card, but like the ball didn't hit his hand. It was just really confusing and just sort of a strangely refed game. So both coaches had a problem with it. I think this is sort of a larger issue, but um, as far as this game, it didn't end up having a huge effect on the final result, I don't think, but sort of a talking point of MLS is the refereeing needs to get better. Yeah, absolutely. Talking point every year, it (laughs) seems like. I've I've had so many conversations on this podcast about this. And and yeah, I I wish that was a sign for MLS that the refereeing does need to get better and there were active steps to make that happen. But we will see. Um, Something that did have, I think, a, a bigger impact on the game is the Timbers obviously attacking performance. And um their ability to come out towards the end of the game and get those two goals. We've been talking the last few weeks about how lackluster the attack has looked, how lethargic it's looked. What did you think of the attacking performance in this game? Well, I think that this is a Timbers attack that we are never going to see again. So I'm kind of hesitant (laughs) to read a lot into it. I mean, like we talked about, the Timbers were missing nine players. And the Timbers also played a little bit of a different formation. They played a 4-3-3. They normally play a 4 Two, three, one, and I, uh, like I said, I was talking to Peter Vermees. I don't know if Giovanni Savarese talked about why he did that, but I'm guessing just the different personnel that he had, wanting to maybe have a little more defensive cover, was maybe why he switched formations because they are missing some of their best players. But I mean, if we go down the list of missing players, Sebastian Blanco was out. He is going to play every chance he's available. It doesn't sound like his injury is that serious that he's not going to be around. Uh, Brian Fernandez was sick and unable to start. Will Eric Williams and uh, Andy Polo ever start together in the midfield ever again? Uh, I'm not sure about that. So, and then we have Dyron Espria started and I would be shocked, shocked if he ever starts for the Timbers again. So I don't think there's anything about this attack that we're going to see again. And with Dairon Espria specifically, I mean, a lot has been made of how long it took for him to come off the field when the Timbers were down and needed uh, to get a goal. When he came off the field, Giovanni Savarese tried to shake his hand and Espria ignored him. And then there was sort of this interaction where uh, Savarese 
patted him or kind of slapped him. And it, it was unclear if it was playful or if it was like, hey, look at me when I'm trying to give you a high five. I couldn't really figure out what that meant. So there have been a lot of conspiracy theories about like, is Espria on the way out? You know, is he now in the doghouse with Giovanni Savarese? All of that aside, I just don't think Dirona Sphere played well and he shouldn't start again. So I don't think we're going to see this attack again. But what do you think? Yeah, talking about Spria specifically, I, I'm going to ask Savarese about that a little bit more tomorrow, uh, that interaction. And it's very likely he's not going to say anything of note. Um, uh, coaches very, always very likely. Are, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, coaches in general are going to protect their players. Or not general. Not yeah, good many coaches, coaches yeah. yeah, are going to throw their players on their butts. You don't really expect that. So um, I, I'm not expecting him to necessarily talk too much about that interaction, but look back at Espria's history with the Timbers. I, I mean, he was sent on loan because he had a bad attitude. And yeah. it, it was at that time, it seemed very unlikely that he would be back at this team. He basically begged the club to give him a second chance. And then you have a game like this where he clearly doesn't have the right attitude. He wants to be in that game and he doesn't, he's not really thinking of the team in that moment. Um, no. I'm not sure. Like you said, it was a little bit of an obstructed view on the replay that I saw. So I'm not sure exactly what happened on that interaction. And I don't want to read too much into it, but I don't think it, 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 I mean, it's, you can't deny that he took a long time to come off the field. You can't deny that he sort of ignored his coach. Yeah. He looks surly regardless yeah. of like, we don't know what Savarese was doing in that interaction interaction necessarily, but Espria was being surly. Like he didn't yeah. want to come off and that, that was ridiculous. He played for 70 minutes and didn't really do yeah. anything. So he had yeah. no reason to be upset. Yeah, and I think Savarese has given him a lot of chances. Um, and we've talked yes. about how he may not deserve that in the past just based on talent. I mean, I don't think he's done very much for the Timbers except uh, in the postseason where he, he suddenly comes alive. I don't think he should start again because of the reason you mentioned. I don't think he played very well, although I wouldn't be shocked to see him in the lineup just because of the five games in 15 days that we see coming up. And if the Timbers have injuries, they just might not have a choice in terms of having to just use all the bodies. Foster get ready for start. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. It seems like any player, uh, for whatever reason, is ahead of Foster Langstorff. He has not been able to get on the field. But I... After that performance, after that sort of Espria's attitude, I've said this before and I've been wrong before because he's clearly came back, but I just don't see him coming back next year. I just don't know what role he has on this team in terms of his talent. And the fact that these attitude issues are still popping up after the amount of years he's been with this team for for a club that's trying to always create a really good locker room, it, it just seems... So strange that they've stuck by Sria through all this. Yeah, I think we both have been wrong before because <laughs> I was convinced that he wouldn't still be on the team. I was utterly mystified by the amount of starts he was getting last year over Jeremy Abobasi. I think that sort of became the rallying cry of everyone in the <laughs> RCTID was that they, that they wanted a Spria bench so Abobasi could play. So, you know, Giovanni Savarese has seen something in him that we clearly have not. Um, But I I think you're right that they just might not have the players to not continue to play Asriya. I just, I still don't see from a talent standpoint why he would be playing, but maybe from a (laughs) roster standpoint, he'll have to. 
Yeah, and I, I think looking at the attack more generally and the performance we saw, I mean, Christopher asked, even even though they won, why am I still worried about their performance? And I, I think for me, part of that came down to the fact that for the first maybe 80 minutes of that game, the attack did struggle. And yes, yeah. it's not going to be an attack we're going to see again. And I, I do think Brian Fernandez coming on made an immediate difference. I, I think it maybe it's not going to be as um, noticed on the first goal, but his ability to sort of stop his run, recognize that Jeremy Bobasi was running to the back post, kind of hold his defender back and create that opening for Bobasi, I, I think was important to also setting up that goal. And he obviously gets the game winner. Mm-hmm. I, so I think the dynamic changed when he came into the game. Um, but for the majority of that game, it was the same old, same old day. I mean, it was the Timbers are facing a bunkering team and they don't have a solution. And so even though they came back and I, I think there's just it, so much confidence they can take away from that and, and confidence in terms of feeling like, yeah, we, we are capable of being the good attacking team that we thought we were. I, I think the first 80 minutes of that game sort of still gives you pause that this team hasn't totally figured out how they can be consistently as good as they need to be in the attack to, to get to where they want to in the standings. Yeah. I think Christopher, the reason you're still worried about that performance was that it wasn't really that good for 80 minutes. Uh, I agree with everything you said. The goal sort of shifted the momentum. There was nothing we saw in that game that showed that the Timbers can consistently deal with bunkering teams. And, you know, like I said, I sort of dismissed this game a little bit in that the personnel we saw, the formation we saw, I don't really think that's what the Timbers are going to be trying to go back to in the future. But I also just didn't see anything that made me feel confident that the Timbers, you know, whatever players they have on the field, that they have a game plan to break down bunkering teams. And, you know, they got the result, but I just don't think it's something they can replicate because, I mean, they're just not going to be in these circumstances again. Yeah, and they're going to face, uh, we'll get into it in a minute, but they're going to face a very, very good defensive team uh, this weekend against D.C. United, and so another difficult team to break down. We'll see uh, what, what their attack looks like then. One player that a few people did mention, um, and I, I we've rarely talked about him on, on this podcast or, or in general, so I think it's worth bringing up, um, is Thomas Konechny. Uh, Aaron asks, should Konechny be given a start in at least one of the games coming up to save Larry and Blanco's legs since the Timbers are going to be dealing with a five-game and 15-day stretch? I think the question comes out of Konechny uh, nutmegging his defender to pass the ball off to Valeri to set up Brian Fernandez's game winner. What did you think of Konechny's performance, and do you see him getting back in the lineup, um, maybe, maybe the starting lineup specifically uh, this month? Well, I think Aaron, you know, he's asking about Konechny, but I think he is hitting on a very crucial point, which is five games in 15 days. I mean, I remember a point where it was really important to be able to rest Valeri and Blanco, and those guys haven't gotten any rest this season, it feels like. So I think that's a really big factor. And I think, Jamie, you called it in our last podcast. You said you thought that the injuries that the Timbers are going through could decide the season because there is the potential that some of these injuries are going to end up stretching multiple games just because of how compacted the schedule is. So I think that's an important thing that is going to decide – maybe if 
the Timbers even make the playoffs at this point, honestly. But to Aaron's question, I think Konechny, we obviously saw something good on that goal against Kansas City. I think that was sort of a flash of the potential that he has. I think the Timbers and Giovanni Savarese have high hopes for him. They see a lot of potential. They see him as a player that can blossom into an important player, I think. But when he has come on, which, to be fair, hasn't necessarily been for the largest chunks of times, but when he's come on, he does have a tendency to be a little bit invisible and have trouble sort of finding the game. So... I think going into the stretch, realistically, um, I think it would be a good idea for Savarese to maybe give Konechny a chance to start and get a significant amount of time just because of the schedule. Less to do with Konechny, maybe a little more to do with the stretch. I talked about it in a previous podcast. I think Giovanni Savarese should pick a game that he thinks the Timbers might lose anyway or would be okay to lose and just roll out a B team because we need to get an injury update from Giovanni Savarese. I'm sure, Jamie, you're going to ask Gio yep. tomorrow about that. But if they don't have a lot of players, they're going to need to rest some players. I think they could put out a B team, and Konechny could be someone to start. I mean, Jamie, the injuries are the biggest <laughs> thing. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think Konechny is a promising young player. I think he has looked a lot better this season than he did in his very limited Uh, time on the field last year I would be surprised if he didn't get a start in in this stretch because I I do think the Timbers will have to make at least some rotations but uh, we've been wrong before about how much they ride their starters during uh, these tight windows but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it worked that well last time they they got they (laughs) won two games and lost three um, in in a similar stretch in August so I think Konechny should get some time I think it's a good thing that Timbers were able to renegotiate his deal so he wasn't so they could bring him in and not make him a designated player. Uh, so that I guess they're having him at a you know more reasonable salary uh, in which he can grow with this club because I, I do see the potential for maybe him being more impactful down the line. Uh, but yeah, he's not going to be a regular starter at this point. I, I think he's shown enough to be an option when you have to rotate anyways. And I think he's shown enough to that he can be a decent option for them off the bench, even though... I don't think the consistency there is yet, which you expect from a young player. I mean, it's going to be a little bit inconsistent, but the flashes are are promising to see. Yeah, and I'm just going to say, Foster Langsdorf, come on, <laughs> come on, Gio, let's see it. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I, I mean, it, I don't, it would be interesting. I mean, that's a whole other topic, but uh, he has not been able to break in despite. <laughs> yeah, I think now that they have Brian Fernandez, it's not really been no. something people are clamoring for. But last year, I mean, people really wanted to see Foster Langsdorf. And he, I mean, he was having a really good season in the USL. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things you you don't necessarily know until you try it yeah but the desperation that I think everyone felt last year when we really wanted to see Foster Langsdorf play just isn't there this year but you know if injuries keep going the way they're going we might get there so we'll see (laughs) yeah so looking ahead to this weekend uh, as we've alluded to the Timbers are playing DC United on Sunday that game's at 12 30 the game time was switched uh, so it could be on ESPN DC United's in fourth in the East. They've scored only 39 goals, uh, which is very low. 
Um, it's fewest for teams above among teams above the red line, uh, both in the West and the East. But they've only allowed 38, so they've been pretty good defensively. Wayne Rooney's been out for two games, but uh, on a suspension. But as far as I know, he's expected to be back for this game. Well, he tends to avoid artificial turf, so yeah. we'll see. I mean, a lot of uh, ex-European stars who don't like to play on turf yeah. will play at Providence Park because supposedly, I am not an expert on this, but supposedly Providence Park has pretty nice artificial turf compared to everyone else. So maybe he will play, but if he doesn't play, he's probably just avoiding artificial yeah. turf. Yeah, and obviously that can make a huge difference in the game. Uh, Rooney has led, leads DC in both goals and assists, so yeah. whether he plays uh, could make a big difference. Whether who, who can play for the Timbers is going to make a big difference too. <laughs> we'll have... Unfortunately, we don't have the injury update yet. I'll be posting more of that on Oregon Live later this week. We know that Renzo Zambrano is going to be out for this game and the next game. He's serving a two-game suspension for his red card. Uh, MLS Disciplinary Committee came down and made it an additional game since he was aggressive towards the referee. It's the wording they used. You called it. it. Yep, it did. <laughs> and it didn't start till he came back from international duty. So this is the first game of the suspension. So he won't be available. I imagine there will be some injuries, at least. I, I highly doubt they're suddenly going to get everyone back. But um, <laughs> hopefully for the Timbers, there are at least a few players coming back. Because as we talked about earlier, first of five games in 15 days. How confident are you right now that they're going to be able to manage this stretch? I'm not confident, Jamie, if I'm just going to be real honest. I mean, what have we seen that should make us feel confident? I guess that would be my question to your question. I mean, especially with the amount of injuries. I don't I don't know that I have a reason to feel confident, but I'm going to kick this one back to you. Maybe I'm being a little harsh. What do you think? Uh, no, I don't think you're being harsh. Um, I think, like, like you sort of mentioned, I, I think the injuries – how the injuries pan out will sort of determine how we should feel about this stretch. I, I think Savaresi has shown he can learn from his past mistakes. He can make adjustments. If the Timbers had a full roster available, I'd feel a little bit more confident that he might be able to manage this a little better than they did in August. And, you know, there was some tough games there. It's not like they were blown out by Minnesota, even though they lost two in a row there. I, I think the game at Atlanta was the one game during that stretch that, um, you can say that the Timbers just didn't play well. Yeah. But the injuries leave a big question mark for me because if they're going to be dealing with the maybe not 14 players available or 14 field players available, but 17 field players available or something like that, I, I just don't know how you manage five games in 15 days. And like we talked about, this is going to decide their season. If they collapse in these five games, they'll be below the red line. They're in a good position that the result versus Kansas City, I, I think, helped them a lot. But this is the season. This stretch and how they manage it is going to determine where they finish in the standings and, and whether they make the playoffs at all. And with That's the, a scary given, thought. Yeah. <laughs> given the injuries, I just – I don't know. I, I really don't know how to feel about this. Yeah. I mean, you said it. It's a scary thought that everything is going to come down to the stretch where <laughs> – we don't know. There could be, you know, anywhere between nine and zero. Well, not zero, but nine and like two players that are out. So, yeah, let's hope that uh, on Tuesday when you go to training that Giovanni Savarese <laughs> has some good news. But 
I don't know. I feel like we've been kept in the dark a little bit on some of these injuries. And I'm kind of thinking maybe there's a reason for that. Like maybe these injuries aren't that great and they don't want, you know, their opponents to know that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when uh, Larry Smabiala got injured, I I mean, I I think the feeling was that, Oh, it might be knee and it wasn't, it was hamstring, which sounded better, but I I don't know if you saw it or you remember. I mean, the day that he got his MRI, Everyone on the team was on Instagram saying, um, like, so sorry, man. Like, best luck in your recovery. It, it oh, just did not sound it promising. It was treated as, like, not a minor thing is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it was that kind of reaction on Instagram immediately sort of, you know, piqued my interest. Like, what <laughs> is going on here? But then, of course, I, I mean. Well, I asked, I asked Giovanni Savarese about it. And got a word salad of nothing. And people took his response to be like, oh, it sounds minor. I was like, that's what you got from what Giovanni Savarese said? He said a word salad of nothing. Like, he didn't give us a straight answer. And that also made me think it was a little more serious than they were letting on. Yeah, so I just don't know um, what to expect. At least the one thing that Giovanni Savarese has been good at is telling us for the game coming up about availability yes, at least. Yeah. Um, I would appreciate more of a timeline, but I, I do <laughs> at least appreciate generally that he he said whether or not X player will be available for this game, unless yeah. it's an injury picked up later in the week. So I'm hopeful that we'll at least have an idea going into DC United what to expect. But uh, yeah, for, for me, it's all about the injuries right now. The Timbers are at home. It, it's going to be easier, I think, to manage the, the stretch just because they don't have to travel. Mm-hmm. But if they aren't able to make rotations because they don't have enough players, I, I'm not confident at all. No. And I guess, do you want to get to Andrew's question, the listener yeah. question? I'm just going to, Jamie, I'm sure you've thought about this more than I have. So I'll just kick this to you. Andrew asks how many points that the Timbers need to get out of these games to secure a playoff spot or host a playoff game. How yeah. How has your math been going over there, Jamie? <laughs> Yeah, um, the Timbers have six games left. Five are at home. Obviously, we've talked about the stretch being difficult. I When you look at the Western Conference right now, it is really close. The Timbers are only three points behind the Seattle Sounders. The, the Timbers aren't finishing first. LAFC is already finishing first. So we can throw that out the window. Yeah, but isn't it four points is separating second place and eighth place? Yes. Like, yeah. that is crazy close yeah so really anything can happen i will say that 50 points has been a benchmark in the past Mm -hmm. yeah um so that's the best i can sort of do in predicting i would say the hope is that the timbers at least uh end up with 50 points and to be clear the timbers are in 43 right now and in the past it's usually been around 50 points i mean i i was going through the past seasons as well 46 one year was enough, yeah. but I, I don't think that's going to be enough this year. I think, I don't think a minimum of 50 points is what the Timbers should be trying to get. Yeah, I, I mean, you look at these teams, I, I mean, the lowest seventh place FC Dallas is 43. Um, so with five games left, you you think Dallas has five games left, um, you know, they can still reasonably get to 50. So yeah. I, I think that's a decent benchmark to look at, especially with the home games. Uh, we'll see. It, it has not gone as well as I like to have seen at home so far. And 
also not with compacted schedules. I think to finish in one of the seeds that you're going to host games, it's going to have to be higher than 50 points. I I think they're going to have to have a strong finish. You look at some of the teams around them. You look at Dallas. You look at the Galaxy. I wouldn't say their schedules are that tough. They they play some teams. Um, I, I forget exactly who plays who, but I, I mean, they have games against Vancouver, Colorado. I, I think that they're going to have some games and opportunities to pick up wins. Um, so the Timbers, I don't think, can just get into the playoffs by sort of coasting these next six games. I, I, I think we're going to have to see a good performance from them. I guess that's sort of like avoiding the question, sort of. I, I didn't ex- Well, pick we don't exact- have crystal balls. I mean, it yes. changes every season. And we have a new playoff format. Yes. So, you know, the seeding is going to work a little bit differently, obviously, because now the ho- there are one-off games. So now the higher-seeded team is going to host. The seeds don't reset, I think, as you go through yeah, the the higher seed is going to host in every individual game. So, um, if the Timbers uh, finish, right? So it, it's not a bracket style where no. you just kind of go through. It's whoever yeah. is higher seeded maintains that advantage throughout the entire yes. playoffs, right? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it's a different format, and I don't know if we necessarily know how it's going to impact the playoffs because with the two leg games. The higher-seeded team would host the second game, and there was so much debate about whether that was actually beneficial to the higher-seeded team. So, I mean, there are a lot of different factors. Uh, I mean, this format is definitely going to change things, and because they're one-off games, I mean, I would expect that it's going to be really hard for lower-seeded teams to make it to MLS Cup in the way that in years past seem to happen pretty often. I think it's just going to be a lot harder in one-off games to get through if you're not a home team. So, you know, I think it's still a good goal to get in the playoffs, but really we should be talking about are the Timbers going to be hosting? I mean, I think that's going to be a huge factor, but we'll have to see. That seems a little out of reach at this point, but not really when you look at how close the table is. The Timbers just need to play better. Yeah, I mean, with a strong finish to the season, I, I think they could host, but it really depends how they do uh, in this stretch of the next five games. And I, I think when you look at the knockout round, obviously the Timbers went on the road. They beat Dallas last year in the knockout round. They advanced. But going into that game, there was a lot of question marks because ju- of just how good uh, home teams had been in the knockout round. And there was something crazy, like only three or four games had yeah. ever been won by the away team. And I think that's sort of where we should be looking at when we're predicting what the playoffs are going to look like from now on. Mm -hmm. Single elimination is great. Maybe, maybe an away team can uh, pick up a win here and there, but it is very, very unlikely that a team is going to go on the road and win out and and make it to MLS cup. I I just think they're going to have to win every game on the road in the, in this format. So yeah. And I just don't see that happening. So no. Yeah, making playoffs is not really a great benchmark for the Timbers. If they finish in seventh, I predict they're going to have a very short off season or very short postseason, an early off season. Bubble uh, person. Good job. Yeah. All right. On that note, uh, we'll get into the five games coming at us quickly. Um, six games total, but five games very quickly in the next few weeks. But let's move on to the hot takes segment. Hot takes. Hot takes. I think I'll go first just because uh, keeping with this weekend game, it's sort of related. Um, 
I don't want to talk too much about this because we have talked about it a ton over the last few weeks. But I did want to bring up uh, the Iron Front once again and the protests that the Timbers Army uh, had at this weekend's game in reaction to fans that had held up the Iron Front banner being banned three games from Providence Park uh, for those actions. I I was sort of expecting the Timbers Army when, when that came out to you know, really double down on their protest. And what they decided to do instead is they didn't hold up any flags during the game at all. And they didn't put off, uh, didn't light off any smoke during the goal scoring celebration. Which until the 83rd minute, I thought the yes. opportunity for that protest <laughs> would not even present itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, I, I didn't notice. I didn't notice a protest. I, I mean, I knew yeah. that it was there. I, I I knew that I was supposed to be looking for it. So in that sense, I, I saw that there wasn't any smoke. But I just don't think if they're still trying to get MLS's attention, I know the whole weekend was about education. And, and I, I think the intentions are good. But they have to have something that's going to get MLS's attention. And the silent protest did that. I think not coming to a game would do that. Yeah. But I, I don't think something like not having smoke at a goal-scoring celebration but cheering the rest of the game is going to be what gets MLS's attention. So yeah, this has been going on for a while. Clearly, MLS doesn't want to back down. They haven't made any changes there. If the Army really hopes to see change, I, I think they have to keep pushing the protest to a different level. And by sort of... I think their actions, they sort of back down against MLS a little bit and... Yeah. If this is what the protests are going to look like going forward, I think MLS can just ignore them. Yeah, I think we were sort of at a point where MLS was going to ignore them anyway. But I think this particular protest, which I guess I'll use in air quotes because we talked during the game, I think you and I, we go to Tibbers games every week. We're used to seeing the flags. We noticed they weren't there. But it didn't really have an impact on the game. I don't think the average man really noticed. And I actually think this protest played into the hands of what MLS wants. Yeah. Because, yes, I know that MLS shows the flags and the TIFOs and their marketing materials. But one thing that has been made abundantly clear with them banning some of these fans is that they're really intent on getting rid of the Iron Front. And they are willing to take serious action to make sure that happens. And... I think if MLS had the choice of no flags at all or flags with iron front symbols, MLS would choose no flags at all. I have to say, I was a little surprised by these bands, these three-game bands for members of the Timbers Army. And I guess maybe I was a little naive because I think, you know, you and I have talked about it on this podcast. This wasn't really an issue. It's hard to see why this is such a priority for MLS. But what is now clear is that it is a very big priority for MLS. And I just want to be clear, like, the Timbers Army is a group of volunteers. The Timbers Army is, I think, the biggest supporters group in MLS. They have... um, I think it includes the Riveters for the Thorns, but around uh, 6,000 dues-paying members. I mean, that's a huge group of people that can, you know, work together uh, to create change. But they're also volunteers. They're also people that have helped build the supporters' culture for years. And I can understand that they don't want to just abandon it, because if these people stop showing up to games, 
then other fans are going to come in and they are going to change the culture of the team and potentially get rid of the culture that these people have been building for years. So I think it's a tough situation. I think everyone, you know, who's part of the Timbers Army has to make their own decision about what they want to get out of this protest. Are they doing it to get change from MLS, which I see as a dwindling possibility? Or is it for their own, um, you know, their own moral compass and feeling like they're doing the right thing? I think you know, th- this is a tough situation for the members of the Timbers Army who feel passionately about this. But I think that the one thing I learned is that MLS is really serious about this. More serious than maybe, I guess we knew they were serious, but I sort of couldn't comprehend it because, you know, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal. So we'll see what they do next. Um, but I agree. I don't think that protest uh, was very effective. Yeah, I don't think the controversy is going away anytime soon um, because, like you said, MLS is not going to change this unless they feel like they have no other option, as it appears. I mean, maybe they're supposed to be meeting with the Independence uh, Supporters Council. Maybe something comes of that, but I I really agree with you. I think they are intent on on keeping this specific ban uh, unless they feel pushed uh, to make a change. And I don't think they feel pushed. Yeah, not at this point. Um, Caitlin, hot take time for you. Well, after that cheery hot take, I've got another (laughs) cheery one. Uh, (laughs) Not cheery at all. Actually, a a serious subject. Um, And not really a hot take, but just, you know, something that I think we should address and talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about the Thorns game at Utah. We're going to talk about the actual soccer But I did want to address something else that came up in that game, and that was the allegations that someone in the stands was making racist comments towards Adriana French. Utah Royals and the league are investigating it. As we're recording, I don't think there have been any updates. I think the last that we know at this point is just that they're investigating. Adriana French, either way, she felt the need to address it on Twitter. She said that what happened was not a first for her, which is disheartening and sad and terrible. But this is the first time that, as far as I'm aware, that the NWSL specifically has had to deal with this. And I think this is an important moment for the league. You know, we talked about, Jamie, last week, U.S. soccer potentially not running the NWSL anymore. And in fact, my hot take in this very segment last week was about that, was about whether the NWSL was capable of not having U.S. soccer support. And I think an incident like this is a moment for the NWSL to show whether it is actually capable of standing on its own. Because the NWSL needs to address this. If the allegations are true, they need to find whoever that person is and ban them from Rio Tinto Stadium, from attending any NWSL games ever again, That needs to be a very serious punishment for that person. But beyond that, I think clearly I I don't think they were uh, prepared for this. And they need to get a plan in place for dealing with this in the future. I thought the Royals were a little slow to respond. The league, I thought, took way too long to put out a statement. And I thought their statement just lacked specifics and wasn't that helpful. And I can understand why they weren't really ready for this. They've never dealt with this before. But I do think 
you know, with the Iron Front stuff, we, we've seen that, I mean, soccer is a microcosm for the world, and the NWSL needs to be ready for this. I mean, the NWSL is going to become more popular, hopefully. It's going to grow, and stuff like this is going to happen more often. And it's a depressing reality, but that's the world we live in. Like, soccer is not the escape everyone wants it to be. And I think the Iron Front discussion just sort of crystallizes that, because the Iron Front issue can be traced directly to the 2016 election. So, you know, whatever uh, your political leanings or, you know, whatever you think about the Iron Front issue, there's no disputing that that's why it started, because of the 2016 elections. And we have seen more xenophobic and anti-immigrant rhetoric in the world. And that is filtering down to soccer and sporting events and other experiences that we have. So I think this is an unavoidable thing for sports leagues that they have to deal with. And I think for the NWSL, it's one that they have to show that they can adequately deal with. Because we talked about it before, I think MLS really bumbled its response to the Iron Front thing. I don't think they were very clear. I don't think they handled it in the best way that they could have. I think the NWSL needs to get out ahead of this and do everything they can to address it. So, I mean, that's my take. It's not hot. I just think it's an important thing. And I think for the fans, I saw a lot of Thorns fans giving support to Adriana French and, you know, fans in Utah making it clear that that's not acceptable. I think that's also really important. You know, when we talk about supporters culture and we talk about, you know, fans making their voice heard, I think this is a case where we see that's why we really need it. It's important to make it clear that this is not acceptable. So that is my take. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I completely agree, and I, I think you stated it well. I, I think that I'm not sure that anything's going to come of this, uh, unfortunately. I think the last we've heard from Utah is just that they haven't been able to identify the fan, and, and therefore um, they haven't been able to necessarily corroborate the, the allegations, not knowing who the fan is. I, obviously, they had security sent out there, and, and the fan wasn't identified. So um, I'm not sure how this is going to end up. I, I do absolutely agree that the NWSL needs to be prepared for things like this. And I think that as we sort of talked about last week, they don't really have the staffing to be in that situation. I I mean, they released that statement via Twitter well after uh, the clubs had already released statements. So it it almost felt like the NWSL wasn't even part of this, that they they weren't even reacting. I I mean, it was sort of the next day, I think after all the reactions had come out already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stories, none of the stories include, included the NWSL's reaction because they hadn't done anything. And and I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like I've said with this, I don't know if there'll be additional statements or if it'll kind of just, um, unfortunately just disappear with no more comment, uh, because they, they can't identify the fan, but this is an important issue. And and this is absolutely unacceptable to have these kind of comments in stadiums. And there, there does need to be, action when uh, when incidents like this happen and the league has to be part of this and they show that they weren't prepared I, I think this weekend to react in the way that you'd expect from a league so yeah I, I just think that the NWSL needs more staffing they need a true communications director they from a front office standpoint you know the league's functioning well enough on the field but um having staffing in the front office is really important for a growing league and they're not there yet. And I I think that's why you kind of saw how they react to this. It just, the reaction wasn't nearly as swift as it needed to be. 
Yeah, and they in the statement they reference a policy which they didn't provide any specifics yeah. on. So, you know how how much teeth does a policy have that no one seems to know exists at all? Uh, I thought that just wasn't helpful. And I think, you know, the the Royals, for instance, at Rio Tinto Stadium, they do have a number that fans can text to report incidences in the stadium, but that clearly isn't posted enough or isn't su- sufficiently known because people resorted to tweeting at the Royals' Twitter account, which isn't really the most effective way of doing things. Some clubs don't seem to have reporting procedures for this. Like, these are things that now I think every club needs to think about, and the NWSL should be sort of steering uh, that discussion. So... Yeah, I mean, a lot of these points are in uh, a column I did today, Monday, for Yahoo Sports, so um, I apologize for anyone who read that column. But if you didn't, click on it. Let my editors know that people want to read NWSL stories. Um, But yeah, I just think that this incident should be a wake-up call for you know clubs or the league if they haven't thought about the possibility of this stuff, because I think... Like I said, I see sort of the through line between this incident and the racist incidents we've heard about in Syria and in Europe and the Iron Front. I mean, it's all sort of cut from the same cloth in terms of soccer games being a microcosm of what's happening in society. So I think the league needs to address this. No player should have to go through that. No fan should go to a game um, having to worry about this being a problem. So... um, I hope they can address it and not just be reactive to this incident, but proactive to make sure that nothing like this happens again. Um, Let's move on to what happened on the field uh, in Utah um, and the Thorns' performance in this game. They lose one to nothing to the Royals. It's the Thorns' first ever loss to Utah. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn scored the goal, which she doesn't do very often, so... Um, I, that was great for Utah fans, uh, not Thorns fans. <laughs> and U.S. Women's National Team <laughs> and fans. And U.S. Women's National Team fans. <laughs> it's only <laughs> Becky Sauer runs sixth goal that she has ever scored, going all the yeah. way back to WPS. We are still waiting for the national team, though. Fingers crossed. Yeah, someday, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, probably not the best sight for Thorns fans to see. The Thorns did outshoot Utah 21-7 to in this game, but when you look at shots on target, it was only 6-3. to um, and, and the Thorns were shut out for the fourth time this season. Uh, the only other times they've been shut out this season were either against Seattle or Utah. So for whatever reason, it's specifically those two teams that they've had stru- uh, trouble scoring against this year. Utah does have uh, the best defense of the league in terms of goals conceded. So in that sense, it makes sense. But looking at the performance coming out of this game, uh, how would you evaluate uh, how Portland played? Well, I think we can sort of, I guess, overall look at the defense and then the offense. So I think defensively, I still think that the Thorns continue to make some mistakes that are a little concerning. I mean, like we've talked about before, the Thorns are number one in the league. You can't be too down on them. But I do see mistakes in moments where I think they could be punished pretty badly. That's not to say that the defense is bad. They won more duels, won more tackles, had more clearances. They were pretty effective. Um, But I just didn't think that they played as well as I would have hoped. You know, if if I'm a Thorns fan, uh, I'm a little concerned by some of the mistakes. I think 
Emily Sonnet has been a little error prone, not to call her out, but I, I mean, tell me if you agree. I think she's been having maybe her worst season with the Thorns that I can remember. I mean, I think consistency has just been sort of an issue. And that red card, you know, everyone was talking about that red card because of that interaction she had with uh, Amy Rodriguez, where Amy Rodriguez was very upset that Emily Sonnet fouled her, and Emily Sonnet sort of looked at her like, uh, are you serious right now? Like, chill out. Like, it's a soccer game. So that was a funny moment, but, like, Emily Sonnet just got beat pretty badly on that ball, and that's why she was forced into making that foul and getting that red card. So I feel like I have just defensive concerns at the same time. I think you have to give the Royals credit. I thought they moved the ball really well. I thought the partnership between Kristen Press and Amy Rodriguez is really looking good. It's kind of reminding me a little bit of uh, the way Lauren Holiday and Amy Rodriguez used to play with each other for FC Kansas City. So I thought the Royals were really effective. Kristen Press for the national team has taken a big leap forward in terms of her ability to be a link player and her distribution. And that is carrying over to the Royals. I thought she looked really good. So I kind of see a little bit of concern on the defense. And then I have to give a little credit to the Royals. What do you think? Yeah, I think with Sonnet specifically, I I think she has been inconsistent. And I don't think that this is uh, something that we're just seeing this year. I think she was inconsistent last year as well. I, I think actually yeah. la- last year um, she had some much bigger errors overall throughout the season. So mm. she's a really good player uh, when she's at her best, but the inconsistency has been more of a problem than I would like to see over the last few years. Um, and the Thorns really need her to be at her best because when she's at her best, when Emily Mangus is at her best uh, with Klingenberg and Ellie Carpenter, that's a really, really strong back line. Mm-hmm. But it's when they have these little breakdowns when when the players lose their marks. I, I think the lead up to to Sauerbrunn's goal, I, I mean, I, I think the Thorns would like that back. I, I, it was a good yeah. goal, but it certainly wasn't one that you just tip your hat to the other team. I, I mean, they're probably in the video room going through what went wrong and why they put themselves in that position, because I I think it was an avoidable concession. Uh, So yeah, I think the defense can be better. I think they have looked pretty good over the last few weeks, but there were moments in this game uh, where, where they weren't at the level they need to be. And Utah's a good team. Utah is, you know, kind of on the thorns tail right now in the standing is it's Mm -hmm. not just North Carolina. The thorns are, both fighting for the NWSL Shield and trying to ensure that they're going to host a home playoff game. That is still all uh, in within reach, but they could still fall out of the top two if they're not careful. And so it comes down to the littlest details. And yeah, I would agree that when it came down to those details, the defense was lacking in some key moments. Yeah, and then on the attacking side of the game, I thought there were just a lot of passes that looked off from the Thorns. I mean someone expecting a player to be somewhere she wasn't or someone mishitting a ball that, you know, is out of reach. And I mean, I guess part of it could be chemistry issues and international breaks and those sorts of things. So, you know, we've talked about that. That was a big factor with the World Cup, but something just looked a little off. I thought the finishing also left a lot to be desired. I mean, the Thorns had a ton of shots, but they weren't able to capitalize. And some of them just weren't 
great shots, not well placed, not enough power, uh, just not incisive finishing at all. And, you know, again, just as with uh, the defense, you know, on the offense, again, I will give some credit to the Royals, though, because I think the Thorns clearly wanted to try to play out of the back, and the Royals just did a really good job of smothering the Thorns and pinning them back and closing down spaces and making it really hard for the Thorns to kind of work the ball in those tight areas and do the, you know, quick one-touch passing that I think, you know, the Thorns like to do, and that's their style of play. The Royals were really effective at just sort of chasing them around and making it really difficult for the Thorns to play through that pressure. So I think that could have forced some of the sloppy passes, but there were also moments where that pressure wasn't there and the Thorns were still misplacing their passes. Yeah, I'm not that concerned about the attack. I would agree with your assessment. I think um, the Royals are also a very good defensive team and they they make things tough for opposing attacks and the thorns, you know, they need to be better against every team in the league, even a team that's as good defensively as the Royals. But I did think they created a lot of chances. I I think the finishing wasn't always there, but I have confidence that these players, that's not going to be a consistent problem for these players. That's just something that maybe happens in a game. And and I think Nicole Barnhart had a really good game. Mm -hmm. I I mean, the thorns had a couple of shots that I, I think, if she had been a little bit off or if it had been a different goalkeeper that they may have scored. Um, so yeah, I think all of that combined it for me, I take this attacking performance and say, yeah, they could have been better, but they were getting enough good spaces that I, I feel confident that the type of issues here can be easily solved just with maybe another day of practice or or just a day where they're feeling a little bit better. I I mean, I think these players are good enough. They've played together long enough. Maybe the international break uh, made them have a little bit of a drop in chemistry uh, that they can't have, but it was a good enough attacking performance for me that going forward, that for me at the moment is not a concern. Yeah, I don't think I look at this game and say the attack isn't working or it's broken or there are major concerns. I just think in this game, something looked a little bit off, both with the finishing, both with um, you know players combining and creating some of those chances. It wasn't a terrible performance, and like we talked about, with the Thorns being in the top of the standings, we can get a little nitpicky sometimes. And, you know, Nicole Barnhart, I agree. I think she's having a great season. Um, Maybe one of her best, although, I mean, she's had a really long career. She used to be someone who was the number two in the U.S. Women's National Team uh, goalkeeper pool uh, behind Hope Solo. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Nicole Barnhart is having a really great season, and she had a really great game that sort of exemplified the sort of season that she's been having. So I think those are all, uh, you know, fair points. I think, you know, we get a little nitpicky just because the Thorns are so good and they have so many good players that, you know, you can always sort of expect a little more from them. Yeah. And I, I mean, you're, we're being nitpicky, but it is the difference between, you know, potentially getting points and walking away with a loss. And, um, I, I think heading into Wednesday's game, uh, we can sort of see why this result mattered a lot. Uh, the Thorns lose in Utah. They can't pick up any points. They can't gain any ground in the NWC Shield race. They're now moving on to face the Courage on Wednesday, Providence Park, 7.30 p.m. 
The Thorns are just two points ahead of the Courage in the NW Soul Shield race, uh, and the Courage hold two games in hand on Portland. So the fact that the Thorns are at the top of the table is a little bit... Um, it's not the whole picture um, because the Courage have those extra two games, and if they perform as well as they perform the season, it's in their control to move above the Thorns. I think given that setup, um, I, I want to get your opinion, but... Do you think that this is going to be the game that decides which team wins the NWSL Shield? Well, to your point, the Courage actually have a higher points per game average. And when you have teams that have played a different number of games, I guess that's sort of what you look at and say, okay, well, this is the actual best team in the league right now. And that team is the Courage. I mean, it's very close. The Thorns are sitting on uh, 1.8 points per game, and the Courage have 1.9 points per game. So it's very close, but the Courage are ahead right now. And I do think this is a huge game. I mean, this this is a deciding game, I think, in terms of the standings. I think in terms of, you know, which of these teams is better because I think Thorns fans and the Thorns players probably think a lot about the fact that the Courage is the only team that they could not beat last year. The Courage is the team that has always had their number and has been, it's been their main rival because the Courage have been so good. And I think a game like this uh, at this point in the season is going to mean a lot for each team. I wish that it was not a midweek game. I wish both teams were rested. Um, It would have been a great national TV game. Um, So it's unfortunate that it's sort of coming uh, on a Wednesday. Um, I feel like we were just there at Providence Park, Jamie, and now we're going to be there again real soon. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge game. Uh, I don't think it's overselling it to say it could be the most important game of the season right now for either team. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it, it absolutely is the most important game of the season uh, for the Thorns, for, for North Carolina as well. I, I think if North Carolina wins, they win the NWSL Shield. They'll move ahead of the Thorns and they'll still have those two games in hand. I think they win this game. They have the fast track to win the Shield, and I don't see that changing. I think if the Thorns win they have a really good chance of claiming the NWSL shield. But even if that happens, North Carolina, it's still in their control because they will have the two games at hand and only be five points behind the thorns in the standings. So North Carolina, I think is in a better position to recover from this game. Although it won't be easy if they were to lose, if the thorns lose, they're not finishing first in the NWSL. That's my prediction. Uh, So This is a hugely important game. It's unfortunate it comes on a Wednesday. It's unfortunate that both teams are going to be playing on short rest. Uh, We saw last time when the Thorns played the uh, Courage at Providence Park that they had to rotate their lineup. Mark Parsons made it sound like we're not going to see a heavily rotated lineup this time. It sounded like the top players would be out there for this game. Uh, But obviously the short rest uh, kind of throws a wrinkle into it the preparation going into this game. But uh, yeah, I, I am actually very excited for this game because you don't always get games that have the sort of the implications that this one's going to. And yeah, this, this is a huge one for the thorns. You heard it here first folks, whoever <laughs> wins this game is winning the shield. Also, speaking of predictions, we actually uh, blew right past. Uh, we forgot to mention our predictions from last oh, yeah. week, but they were so wrong 
that I think that's for the best. I <laughs> actually predicted Sonnet would score, and uh, she just got a red card instead. So let's, let's just ignore those predictions. They were really wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, looking back now, <laughs> they were. So you, listeners can listen back if they really want to know how wrong we were uh, last <laughs> week. Um, I, I think the one other thing I wanted to hit on this game before we move on is, is just do you take anything away from the game in July where the Thorns beat North Carolina 2-1 heading into this game? Or or because there was a rotated lineup and North Carolina scored two own goals, do you sort of just put that aside and and, and uh, not really think that it's you can read much into what happened there in, in determining the outcome of Wednesday's game? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I don't know how much I take from a game that has two own goals. I mean, just from like... Going back to percentages and, like, you know, I talked about checking 538. Like, what is the percentage that an own goal even happens? <laughs> I just think it's, like, sort of a fluky thing. And, I mean, we've talked about this before. Goals really change games. And, like, that's sort of cliche and obvious. But it does change everything that happens after it. And... I mean, that's one of the things I love about soccer. It's just sort of this constant flow of activity. And whatever happens is going to change everything that happens for the rest of the entire game. So, you know, an own goal, let alone two own goals, is really going to change things. So I don't know how much I take away from it. Maybe that's sort of a cop-out and I, you know, I'm not giving you a real answer. But I just, I don't know what to take from that other game. What do you think? Yeah, I think the Thorns might, you know, have a little bit of extra confidence knowing they beat North Carolina once before, um, especially given how difficult it had been for them to beat North Carolina over the last year. But I, I agree with you. I I think this is going to be a different game. I think there's going to be different players on the field, and I expect, <laughs> I would expect that we're not going to see own goals uh, in the same way uh, again this game. But may, maybe that's the new trend for Thorns versus North Carolina. Who knows? But I think it'll be a different game, and I can't read much into that. Uh, one for sure change we know is that Emily Sonnet will be out uh, with the red card suspension. Uh, Jeff wants to know if how Portland will adjust and whether that uh, will have any impact on the game. I think that it's probably just uh, probably Catherine Reynolds coming in, and um, given that Sonnet's been a little bit inconsistent, I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be a defining factor of the game I don't think that Thorns will necessarily change formation um, but what are your thoughts no I agree with that I think um, they have depth I mean one of the things we've talked about with the Thorns is that they have other players who can step in and there's not going to be a huge drop-off in quality and that's not the same for some teams in the NWSL but for the Thorns that's definitely the case so you know, having a player like Catherine Reynolds or some of the other players on the roster, I think that they have players to slot in and you don't really have to change anything. You're still going to get uh, a relatively uh, solid performance and be able to expect that you will get that. So I agree with that. All right. So big games for both the Timbers and Thorns this week as we're getting towards the end of the regular season in both leagues. Let's get into our predictions. The first game this week is Thorns versus Courage. What do you think is going to happen? So speaking of the uh, likelihood or not of another own goal, my prediction is a 2-2 draw, and there will be an own goal, but this time it's going to be Portland. Oh, man. 
it's, it's gonna, gonna be, be brutal <laughs> yeah that's gonna be brutal if that happens um i'm gonna be optimistic this week because I, I i wasn't super optimistic at least at least on the timbers side last week but i'm gonna be optimistic on the thorns and the timbers this week um alluding to what i'm gonna say uh 3-2 win i think this is gonna be a really exciting game I think Lindsey Horan, who, you know, won the MVP last year, hasn't been the same goal scorer so far this season, obviously hasn't yeah. been around that much. I think this is going to be a big game for her. I think she's going to get a brace. Yeah, actually, on Horan, I was going to talk that o- about that a little bit with the game, just that she hasn't been having the s- same type of season that she had last year. But maybe that's something we can talk about next week. Uh, let's move on to Timbers versus DC United. So I'm going to predict just the worst news fest you can imagine, because I had flashes of that possibility against Sporting Kansas City where nothing happened for a long time. So I'm going to predict a 0-0 draw. <laughs> it's going to be miserable. It's You're going to be clawing and scraping to try to get an interesting recap out of that game. I don't, ha- I don't have a side bet. I had a, my side bet. Maybe you'll want me to pick a different one. Uh, my side bet was that we're going to see some iron front flags in the stands. I couldn't with a zero zero draw. It was really hard for me to think of a side bet. So, okay, um, <laughs> I am going to predict a one zero win, uh, which will make it easier for me to predict a not super interesting side bet. Um, but I, I think the Timbers are going to find a way to get the win here uh, after the Kansas City game. They're, they're going to find a way once again, and I think Brian Fernandez is going to score once again. That's going to be really exciting. Everyone's going to be thrilled that Brian Fernandez is scoring more goals. So, yes, can't wait. That's uh, better than mine. Let's hope <laughs> mine doesn't happen. Mine is terrible. Yes, my my prediction would be a lot better for the Timbers, but uh, <laughs> we've seen how our predictions have been before. So we'll see which side, uh, how close we get this time around. Um, as I've mentioned before. People that are better at predicting things than us are our fantasy players. And to give a update on the standings, it looks like we're, we're starting to get the top three is, is pretty similar week to week in both our leagues. So uh, these three teams in each league are, are sort of setting themselves apart. Head to head league in third place, we have the perpendiculars. That's Roy. Second place, sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. That's Steve. And first place, Mark uh, flicking Portland PTSC. And in our open league, in third place, we have Wook score more goals. That's Robert. Second place, we have Gem City SC. That's Ryan. And first place is still Portland Tobin FC. That is B. Uh, we have kept you guys long enough. Uh, that we is always all we hope have. it's going to be under an hour. It <laughs> yes. never is. We just, Sorry, guys. <laughs> we just like to talk, clearly. Yep. <laughs> we can keep going forever. Um, but that is all for this week. You can find us every week on OregonLive.com and Sumptown Footy. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm working to see if I can get us on Spotify as well. I will keep you posted on that. But, yeah. Uh, But until next week, take care.